Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 68 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, April 10th. Jeff Sessions, still the Attorney General. For the moment. (laughs) And I'm still Bobby Chesney. For the moment. I'm still Steve Vladek. Bobby, is this podcast protected by the attorney-client privilege? Well, you're licensed, I'm licensed, so sure, why not? Yes. You, you often say I'm your uh, next friend in the event of your detention. That is true. You are my next friend, but does that mean that therefore nothing I ever tell you is can be properly the subject of a search warrant? That's right. All, all things said to me uh, can never be uh, seized, observed. I, I, it says something about how big and mostly stupid part of the story is that it got me to not even mention right off the bat that the New York Mets are 8-1 and one, tied <laughs> for their best nine-game start in franchise history. Well, this tells us something about your priorities. <laughs> They're all screwed up. They're all screwed up. Uh, we'll have something to say about the Mets and their hot start later on. Uh, in the and, maybe, and maybe repeatedly and throughout the podcast as I sprinkle in here and there some shots at the Nationals. There you go. You know, don't you, you got to watch out for karma, man. Listen, I just I might this might be my only chance all year. So well, I that's gotta... a good point. You do have to take it while, take it while you can get it. All right. So what have we got today? We have a lot. We do have a lot. So we've got some goings on in Trumplandia, including breaking news. Break. Although by the time people are listening to this. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, for those who weren't online this morning, Tom Bossert is out as Homeland Security Advisor. Um, We'll talk about that in just a moment. And that will segue nicely into (laughs) Michael uh, Cohen. The Michael Cohen Show is now on. The Michael Cohen Show is is not just on. It is in prime time, my friend. It It is potentially huge. Um, and then once we've talked about that, we will, uh, you know, speaking of Russia. Oh, yeah, will, that could be. Yeah, <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> uh, we, will, we will talk about a new round of Katza sanctions. That's Katza spelled C-A-A-T-S-A. Katza sanctions. And then we're going to uh, digress a bit into sort of this, uh, this interesting thing that's happened in the realm of law school hiring uh, practices with law, law firms hiring law students and reactions by law schools will say something about that burgeoning controversy. And uh, from there, Steve? Uh, we got some more stuff. We got uh, the chemical weapons attack in Syria, which seems to be raising the stakes even while President Trump is making noise about apparently pulling out of Syria. Or, Awkward. Or, or retracting or that and or saying, not. or maybe we'll stay. Who uh, knows? We have, we have more AUMF renewal news. Thanks to uh, perhaps a strange and unexpected uh, uh, participant in the conversation, right? Uh, who do you have in mind there? Oh, just, you know, the, the, the uh, we'll get there. All right. Okay. All uh, right. We, we have a recap <laughs> of last... I don't want to spoil the fun. We have a recap of last week's oral argument. Last week's, Bobby, three and a half hour oral argument Although in we only, got, we only get to listen to about an hour of it or so because they bifurcated and had an unclassified public session. Which uh, was actually, pretty, I listened to it. It was very interesting. Not the unclassified session. Not, oh, not the classified no, session. No, the unclassified. Although, say, you know, it's funny. The file, is there something funny about the file, at least the way it downloaded when, when I was getting it off the website. Um, it, it ends at a certain point and there was a ton of tape left. And so I was like, hmm, interesting. I wonder if they just kept recording all through the classified portion. So I, I fast forwarded and uh, no, it just started over. So I don't know what that's all about. (laughs) Um, All right. We also have a little bit of development in the CMCR and the Nashiri case. Uh, You want to talk a bit about this interesting new lawsuit brought by Severstall Exports? I thought you would love this because it gets us into another curious court. It gets us to the Court of International Trade. Oh, that one. Yeah. And it picks up a recurring theme of when and to what extent the 
executive branch gets deference. Uh, and the answer to that traditionally has been, well, a lot in national security claim context. But there's this lingering question, which earlier in this show's run, we talked a lot about in the, uh, the travel ban cases. Are there times when silly or, or worse tweets from the president actually undermine his, his administration's ability to get that deference? So we'll talk about that in Severstall Exports. Wow. And uh, that and, ought to do it. Well, and then there's frivolity, which it, is, you know, you're going to ask me if I can rank the, the Mets starting pitchers in order of, I guess, their, their, their ability. And, and we have to do that because you still haven't seen Black Panther. Okay, so my assistant, <coughs> this, so this is why I love my assistant, Marsha. So my assistant, Marsha, is well aware of my falling down on this particular obligation. And so has been, has been sending me today, this morning, um, lists of what time it's playing and when <laughs> well, over the next couple of days to facilitate my ability to see it, perhaps maybe during workday. I, I got to tell you, man, uh, I'm gonna have to go, I'll probably have to go with you to see it again because I, I almost can't remember what happens in it. Uh, Marsha and I may have to just do this sequence without you. So uh, <laughs> we may be substituting I would pay Marcia good money to listen to Marsha on this podcast. All right, well, next, next week, Marsha, get ready. Um, also, you need to go ahead and see Ready Player One. Dude, I, I I have a lot of movies to see. Yes, you do. I, I don't know when you find the time. Uh, you know, by, by not doing all this litigation you get involved in, it frees up all kinds of time. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, uh, so So stray comment, right? Um, you know, I, I sometimes bring out some trolls on Twitter, you know, with some of my tweets. And my favorite ones are the ones where I get accused of being a lazy law professor who just hangs out in Ivory Tower and doesn't know how the real world works. Nice. Yes, like, that is such a good description of how you spend your time. It is such, I mean, I just, I you know, I, I sit in the library reading 18th century European philosophy and don't don't actually look at the world at all. It's just it, it's so I, mean. I must say I love our 18th century. Did you say European philosophy? Uh, what was the oh, what was the the Chief Justice Roberts quote? Um, right, the um, the influence of Immanuel Kant on 18th century like <laughs> Bulgarian evidence or Hungarian evidence law. I love our Hungarian evidence law philosophical influences room in our library. It's a very comfortable spot. Uh, the, the, the wood paneling, the, the servants. That's it's just a, the whole thing. Is, okay, we have gotten way off the rails. Should we get back to work? Uh, let's talk about Tom Bossert. Okay, so this is a quick one. Um, it was. Uh, we learned this morning that Tom Bossert, who's the Homeland Security Advisor uh, and has widely been perceived as both a robust defender of the president and his policies and as a, you know, uh, in the grand scheme of things, more traditional national security figure. I mean, Tom is a, a very impressive person who's been highly influential on cybersecurity related policies. I think deserves a lot of credit, for example, for the uh, uh, the many quite good provisions in the Trump administration's May 2017 executive order on cybersecurity. Um, and, and basically somebody who's sort of a, a career national security wonk type guy, both on traditional sort of CT type policies, but also cybersecurity. Um, clearly was uh, somebody who worked well with McMaster, and one day after John Bolden starts, he's out so, very uh, precipitously. I mean, I think the so he resigned, but my sense is that he resigned ahead of being fired, much like the spokesperson for the National Security Council, Anton. Hard, hard to know about it, but I, I will say that nobody, as far as I know, people did not know this was a, a likely or looming thing. Um, and I would definitely characterize Tom as having been a, uh, a, a traditional sort of, 
strong national security, traditional Republican, conservative national security type, and therefore the label adult in the room is right. easily applied right. to him. Right. So so, right. I mean, someone who I probably agree with on very, very little, but who I actually have a lot of faith in to, you know, at least abide by the rule of law, to not do things that are crazy. Oh, absolutely. Much no, like no, maybe... No, he's, he's, he, one thing's for sure, he's clearly a very professional, very right. honorable much, person. Much like maybe Secretary Mattis in this context. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, me and by extension, is somebody I probably agree with a lot, but we also <laughs> add... Um, I would add that I just think he was somebody you, you, you could be very comfortable. He could have had that position in any number of administrations, yeah, yeah. and it's a shame to see him go. You know, our poor listeners, right, they hear us talk all the time about our myriad disagreements, and they hear me say, I never agree with that person, and you say, I agree with them all the time, and they have no idea. They, they don't actually get a real sense for what we actually disagree about. Maybe it's all just a posture, a pose, no. marketing for the program to make it like Crossfire. I, I think the irony, actually, is that the things we disagree about professionally, like in our universe, the area we overlap, are actually probably more modest than many of the things we would to disagree about in other contexts. No, that's probably right. I think we'll get to some today, though, especially with AUMF. Oh, fight, 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 fight. fight. Uh, all, right. all right, speaking of fights, um, so so I, I was offline for a couple hours yesterday, and I came back online to see all of this sort of crazy news about how the FBI has destroyed attorney-client privilege. Ah, and how did they do that, Steve? Ah, they executed a apparently duly obtained search warrant against Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal lawyer. Right. So, do you want to do you want to lay out some basics about how? <laughs> oh my God! Lawyers were not you know immune from search warrants. Yes. So so let's let's but but, but there but there are sensitivities. Absolutely. There are sensitivities which we will talk about, and indeed the U.S. Attorney's Manual is quite cognizant of those sensitivities. But let's so let's start at the beginning. Attorney-client privilege. What is it? Right. Okay. Um, well, it is not protecting us from having this conversation. All right. So, attorney-client privilege is basically it is a common law and now codified um, evidentiary privilege that protects the confidentiality of some, not all, attorney-client communications. Communications that were meant to be private, not not public, and where there's not been waiver, and right that are um, with the uh, with an eye toward the provision of legal services and or legal advice. So, if right. I am talking to my attorney just the two of us, and we're talking about the Mets, um, and it's not about how I can buy the Mets, because that's not a good idea, um, <laughs> not covered by attorney-client privilege just because he's my attorney and it's a private conversation. Okay, now what if it's communications about your business dealings and someone's in the position of being a lawyer who negotiates transactions? Not covered by the privilege, because the lawyer's not providing legal advice, right? So this well, is... Well, that, that, pretty quick on that one, right? I mean, don't we need to know a lot more well, no, detail but, before but you can say that? I took your I took your comment to be he's just, he's just helping you sort of figure out how to structure a business. So, Listen, that sounds like that sounds like something a transactional attorney would be providing legal it advice depend- for. Okay, so let me sorry, let me say it depends on the specific nature of the advice. So if the question is how do I structure this acquisition to minimize, say, my tax liability, right? Good. Okay. Attorney-client privilege, right? That sounds like a normal conversation between a client and, right? Um, versus, hey, do you think this is a good idea for me to buy this company, right? Or, you know, who can we put pressure on to make sure that this deal goes through? Right. That sounds less um, uh, client legal advice type stuff to me. And so I think what this conversation highlights is that if we abstract out sort of hypothetical examples of the types of conversations that could take place or the issues that are in play, you can easily imagine both things that were clearly attorney-client communications things that were clear, and, and things, things that were clearly not right. and stuff in the middle. And, and of course, in, in the way stuff actually is going to present in documents, it won't be so clear. That's right. Okay, so let me get to that. I want to get to the procedure. Yeah. But there's one great exception, of course, which is even if the privilege otherwise applies, there is the well-known but I think not well-understood crime-fraud exception. 
um, which basically says that you cannot, neither the client nor the attorney can invoke attorney-client privilege to prevent the, you, the acquisition and use of information tending to establish the elements of a crime or fraud. So that's, that's what looms really large here. So talk about how the, the U.S. attorneys – so this is – first of all, this is a, a frequently recurring issue. has been yep. for a long, long time. This is not something the law has never thought about. To the point that the government has gone out of its way to create specialized procedures that you can find in the U.S. Attorney's Manual at Section 9-13.4. Twenty, um, titled "Searches of Premises of Subject Attorneys." It's okay. almost like they thought about it. Okay, um, so what what are the what's the highlight or the key takeaway? From so I think the there procedures? are two big takeaways. So big takeaway number one is this is not an ordinary search warrant. The government actually has to jump through a few more hoops, has to go higher on the food chain, has to really make sure all of the ducks are in a row, the eyes are dotted, the t's are crossed. What's the top of that pyramid? Who's the highest ranking official who would have signed off on this one? Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. That guy. That guy. He's back in the news, <laughs> um, which can't be good for him. Well, or so for the republic. So interesting, right? That Rosenstein. Stein sent this to the Southern District. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what, which I don't know this, but I've been assuming that uh, Cohen's office that was raided was in Manhattan. No, no, right. But the question is, why was it the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office and not Mueller, right, whose names were on the applications and the warrants, right? Uh, so I, just to dwell on that for a second, I just assumed it was because, well, look, they're going to go to New York to do this. Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, just so so it, could, it, it could have been for procedural and logistical convenience, although that hasn't been true for some of these prior applications, uh-huh. like Manafort, right? You so have we had any... Uh, Outside Mueller team assistance on any prior? We probably have, but not to this degree, right? Okay, where where yeah. the actual search was conducted under the auspices of the local U.S. Attorney's Office as yeah. opposed to... So another, the more obvious theory would be, well, maybe it's you know somehow a separate investigation. So or it dovetails and connects with something that the Southern District was already, already doing. doing. So, right, so there are three possibilities, Ooh, right? That's interesting. One is just logistical convenience. Two is political cover, right? That, Mueller, that Rosenstein knew this was going to be a super hot potato. Yeah, yeah. And figured he'd kick it to the Southern District where there is an interim, I think interim is the right term, or acting U.S. attorney who is a Trump or at least a, a Sessions pick, right? Um, maybe to sort of uh, spread some of the political accountability. Um, the third possibility is that, in fact, the actual core of the investigation against Cohen is not Trump-specific, right? And is not Russia-specific, and so falls outside the aegis of the Mueller investigation. Right, right. Do, well, then, do we know that there was a Mueller connection in, in pursuing this? It's been reported, right? I mean, so so there's reporting that obviously we have not seen the primary evidence yeah. to support that this started with a request from Mueller to Rosenstein, and that Rosenstein in turn sent it to SDNY. Right, which could really reflect a judgment. And actually, this is an appealing theory in terms of fitting the facts. Correct. That Rosenstein looked at this and said, um, this certainly needs to be explored, but it's really not squarely within your wheelhouse because right. you've gotten into some collateral bank fraud, for right. example, it's or, not, or, or election law fraud. Right. It's not within your wheelhouse, or um, I want to sort of spread the wealth, right? And yeah. sort or of both. And protect you. Yeah. Or both. But these uh, are spaces to watch. All right. Now, with regard to how this is actually supposed to work. So first, the government had to jump through more hoops to get the warrant in the first place. Of course, then it goes to a neutral magistrate, a judge in the Southern District of New York who signs off on the warrant after a probable cause finding. Um, but then we also have to talk a bit about the clean team or right, the taint team, depending yeah. upon one's perspective. Um, so the whole concern here, which I think is totally well-founded, is that even the most properly defined, right, carefully conducted search is still going to collect some pr- privileged information. Exactly. There's there's necessarily going to be some incidental collection of stuff that is not excused under waiver or the crime right, fraud that, exception. Right, that's properly privileged material. He's the lawyer. It's pro- in fact... 
it stands to reason that a huge amount of what's in his papers is in fact properly protected. And so procedurally, the way you handle that, because you do need to get to the stuff that's not protected, is you have a layer of process to make a screen that's walled off from those who eventually will receive and use the information. Right? 100%, right? And so the whole idea is that these folks go in, they're the ones who get the first look at everything. They're the ones who do the segregation of the properly privileged material from the stuff that either is clearly not privileged or at least there might be some claim over, right? So that when the time comes for the prosecutors to come in and to assess the take, they don't have access to the stuff that was properly privileged ab initio. And this is the way it works all the time. All the time. of this ilk. It's not a new type of case. This is not inventing some process that's different. And so, again... So, wait, are you saying attorney-client privilege is not, in fact, dead? No, no I don't think it's dead. I don't think it's even wounded. <coughs> I think it's just... Uh, working this it's way just, through the process. Well, this is so, how this stuff works. What I was going to say was, it's not that attorney-client privilege is dead. It's that attorney-client privilege is not actually a categorical immunity from government investigations of attorneys. Okay. And indeed, were it otherwise, that would be pretty messed up. It would be. All right. So uh, we will see what will come out of this. I think a lot of people think that this is a leveling up and touching much closer to the bone of where Trump could well could well be brought to a pardon at some point because it's beginning to get close to family members and the activities of the Trump organization over the years. Well, so here's the thing about Michael Cohen. I mean, so Adam Davidson, who I recommend folks you know follow on Twitter because he's awesome. Um, Adam's a staff writer for The New Yorker. And Adam has a really good thread this morning, Tuesday morning, um, about just how important Michael Cohen is to the Trump universe. Basically, he's the most important non-Trump right. in the Trump business world. And so that someone, whether it's Mueller or Rosenstein or just the Southern District U.S. Attorney, is now sufficiently uh, convinced that Cohen is up to his eyeballs in some illegal activity, you know, even if it doesn't directly implicate the president, is still really important for the president because Cohen is such an important fulcrum between the Trump family and the Trump business empire. Now, another interesting angle here, I mentioned the possibility of Trump pardoning Cohen, mm. a preemptive pardon, just to put this to rest sure. before real pressure begins to find expression in the form of cooperation. Um, that will take the prospect of federal charges off the table, but it would not take off the table the prospect of New York state criminal prosecution. Um, it is not hard to imagine, Steve, that whatever it is they're finding about prior deals yep. the Trump organization's involved in, whatever else is happening, all these international uh, negotiations that took place, it's easy to imagine some of that material simply going into the hands of the New York AG and or the, or the Manhattan DA. Right. Eric Schneiderman, where are you? So we'll see. Uh, just to underscore the point, the president cannot pardon state law offenses. And so insofar as there may have been crimes or evidence of crimes here, uh, a pardon wouldn't entirely uh, remove the possibility of serious pressure on Cohen. I think that's right. And so the question is whether serious pressure on Cohen is going to prove anything. And it's really interesting, just one last thought before we move along. You know, before we're done, right, the Stormy Daniels piece of this may actually be a really important part of the threat unraveling. Be is, it, is it possible all this is is just sort of election law stuff about the payment? I don't think so. I think this is a this would be a whole lot of effort, energy, and noise 
for a pretty sort of, I think, easily, you know, the, the sort of the, the claim that, so the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels, it's either an illegal campaign contribution by Cohen or it's something much, much worse. But you wouldn't need all these bells and whistles just to get to that one little piece of thing. I wonder, I mean, what if that's all they've really got? And so they're going to get some further evidence about this and they're going to try to pressure him with that. I'd be really surprised if this were all they had. I think I think to get this kind of, from Rosenstein, right, to get this kind of bells and whistles, big, you know, what they knew was going to be a huge publicity thing. They did it on a Monday morning, Bobby. I mean, you know, this, is, this was not an accident. And I think it's about a lot more than the Stormy Daniels payment. Now, the Stormy Daniels payment... And President Trump's public statement that he had no knowledge of it, which, of course, threw Cohen under the bus, right, may have, been the, may have been the last nail in the coffin from, like, a probable cause perspective. Like, it might have been the last little sort of thing on the scale. I can't believe it was the first. We, I, I suspect we'll know a lot more soon. Yeah, or not. Okay. Uh, All right. Speaking of the Mueller investigation, sort of, indirectly, um, we had interesting developments, Bobby, on the sanctions front and Katza. Katza, this is the, uh, the the beloved countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act. I thought you hated acronyms. I, I've grown to love this one. It sounds like ketchup, <laughs> and I like ketchup. All right, just as a reminder, um, you know, you go back a year, and there was mounting angst uh, about the against the backdrop of general concerns that Trump is is soft on Russia, if not if not uh, you know uh, fawning over Putin, that the Trump administration was going to fail to exercise the special economic sanctions authority that Congress had had delivered through Katza, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. Um, specifically, that statute provided special sanction regimes uh, for interference in um, various forms of computer network operations and you know that would encompass the election but a lot else as well and it also talked about going after uh, some of the the industrial the military industrial complex that supports russian aggression in uh, the ukraine and then there was a provision about uh, oligarchs close to putin now as we've talked about many times in this program the the real lever that is available to uh, both Europe and the United States, the UK and the United States, for all of us, is to go after the inner circle of, of really wealthy individuals that we commonly call oligarchs. Um, you know, we only call them oligarchs when it's when it's uh, <laughs> outside, you know, Europe and the United States. You're an oligarch if you're super rich in Russia and, and not otherwise. But anyways, the idea was, look, there, there's the sanctions authority that's right there. And there was this angst because people felt that the administration was actually put either not sufficiently acting under the sanctions regime or even flouting its terms by not acting when it's supposed to. We had a program a while back that kind of looked closely at the details and we saw that, well, it really wasn't the case that you could show that they were actually violating the statute by not acting, but there was a lot of concern that they weren't, they clearly weren't taking up the tools or so it seemed. Well, there were rumblings out of Treasury that they were getting to it. And as we noted a little while back, they did have a very loud statement and set of initial sanctions not long ago, where I think I was I was applauding uh, the Treasury Secretary for coming out mm -hmm. and saying all the things you would want said, denouncing Russian aggression in the Ukraine, denouncing interference with our election, denouncing the attempted mur murder of Sergei uh, Skripal and his daughter. Uh, and then... Last week, Treasury came back with more of the same. Uh, we've got a new set of Katza sanctions, and this time it does go after and use the oligarch-specific authorities. So you've got uh, basically seven very wealthy uh, 
friends of Putin who have been designated in 12 companies that they control, along with 17 other Russian officials and one state-owned Russian weapons company, along with a bank that is a subsidiary of the weapons company, which hey. just, that fact pattern, like to me, that is, that is so, that's peak 2018. It's, it's or, or do you remember yeah. that movie, The International with Clive Owen? No. Oh, where, where, where the big international bank was like the the world's weapons, like, you know, uh, uh, sort of manufacturer, not manufacturer, but like weapons uh, sort of orchestrator, weapons sales orchestrator. Oh, I see. Well, this is, you know, that that's Hollywood <laughs> to a T right there. The only the only acceptable, uh, you know, bad guys these days are, you know, big Banks. companies. Well, it could be any big company, especially best, though, if it's a weapons company, maybe one that owns a Russian bank. Anyways, um, at the same time, uh, the administration did issue uh, two general licenses. What's going on there is there, the, the sanctioning of some of these entities is not just a big deal for the entities and individual sanction, but also people who are doing legitimate business with them find themselves really imperiled by this. Um, there are procedures set up to ease the impact on American and allied individuals or businesses that have contracts in the works. So uh, that's basically what happened. I just can't, can't help but note some of the details here. Some of these people are real charmers. <laughs> so take uh, Oleg Deripaska. Who, 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 by the way, according to Bloomberg, lost $1.1 billion on Friday as a result of the sanctions. Oh, I love it. See, that's that's kind of where I'm going with this. This stuff really matters. These are the levers where America and our European allies, we have an asymmetric advantage and can actually um, make some progress in terms of influencing these individuals. So... Uh, Deripaska, here's some fun facts. Uh, according to Treasury's statement, he's accused of uh, wiretapping, bribery, ordering the murder of a rival, having links to organized crime. Lovely. Uh, let's let's just summarize Steve's point there a moment ago. On Monday, the ruble dropped some four percent against the dollar. Russian government bonds, their values dropped. The Russian stock market as a whole apparently dropped some eight percent. One of the targeted companies, and Steve, this might be the one you had in mind. Its value dropped 20%. So it's not obvious where or how Putin will respond to this use of economic leverage. Uh, he certainly will be motivated. This is designed to hit where it hurts for him and his friends. Uh, and it clearly is having a substantial impact economically. Um, and you might say, well, well, Putin, of course, will escalate. He always fights back. Right, but he's kind of been doing all the stuff that they are good at, the, the gray zone stuff. It'll be interesting to see, Steve, you know, how they respond. But in any event, I think this is a, a great sign that at least some parts of the administration, and once again, I want to give full credit to Treasury yeah. and the Secretary. They're doing what you would expect an American government institution to do in resisting Russian aggression. Good for them. Yep. Um, all right. I think, I mean, obviously, stay tuned and see what happens there, but interesting times. Yep. Um, there actually isn't a really good segue to our next topic, but you know, well, it's been... aggression. We're talking about aggression, and there's there's certainly been Assad regime aggression in the form of using chemical weapons. Oh, we're jumping over our next topic. Well, what was ours? All right, well, let's do, well, no, let's do Assad. Then we'll do NDAs after yeah, Assad. Yeah, let's, let's keep that. Okay. All right, so Assad, chemical weapons, go. Well, look. So <laughs> what is there to say? Uh, the Assad regime keeps using chemical weapons. Now, the reason we're talking about it, aside from the intrinsic humanitarian concern about the violation of this taboo and the human suffering it causes, uh, is that the administration previously conducted an airstrike on the Sherat uh, airbase, the Assad regime, government-controlled airbase, in response to an earlier use of chemical weapons. And there was a lot of crowing about how, unlike Obama, Trump had actually done something by way of inflicting punishment on Assad for using chemical weapons. And, and frankly, you know, there's a, 
setting aside the, le- the legal aspects of whether that's domestically legally justified or internationally legally justified, just as a matter of policy, it is nice to see someone really pushing back in a concrete way against the use of chemical weapons. Um, will they do it again? And what about those legal niceties? <laughs> those legal niceties. So, I mean, this is coming at an interesting time, right, because the president last week made a whole lot of noise about pulling U.S. troops out of Syria writ large. Yeah, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, um, which, by the way, would be a huge win for the Russians, right? I mean, I think it just— Look, they, they've already won this one, and so it's not—it didn't surprise me at all he said that. When, you know, before the election—before he came into office, I gave some talks, and I may have said this in the program before— I was asked by audiences on several occasions, you know, what are some things that will be very different in foreign policy? And I said that you will see, whether, whether it's overtly acknowledged or not, the Trump administration is going to give up on the regime change policy regarding Assad. And in part out of, out of uh, playing to its semi-isolationist tendencies, according to the president's rhetoric, and in part out of, you know, sort of this sort of strange... Uh, willingness to accommodate the Russians in what they do, mm-hmm. we'd get out of that game. Yeah. And, and that would be a big win for Assad and right. the Russians. And but, the Iranians, I should add. Um, so do so you want to say a bit about the, the sort of legal authority for for, for, for strikes? Yeah, so we we're, I think what we're talking about here is just rehearsing the same set of arguments we already had about the both... <laughs> over and the, over. <laughs> which you may have noticed is kind of what the show is. Um, Wait, what? We don't have new material? You know, we should just one week, we should just post as a new show some old show. Let's <laughs> see if anyone notices. That we're, we're like the Energizer Bunny. We keep going and yeah. going. So what are those debates? Domestically, Steve, uh, the president in using lethal force, you would think that using overt military force like a barrage of missiles, that surely that triggers the war powers debate. Um, let's hit all the highlights. Let's do kind of a lightning round. War powers Again? resolution. Oh, gosh. Well, it's a... Episodic intervention, yes. so you could talk about the 60-day clock, or maybe it's the 60 days plus 48 hours, or maybe it's 90 days plus 48 hours, but none of it matters because it's episodic. Right. Unless, Steve, if we do it once every year, does that make it a... Is there is there a capable of repetition yet evading review exception to the War Powers Resolution? Yet, yet another problem with the War Powers Resolution. So so clockwise, that doesn't really enter into it very well. No, I mean, listen, we're, I mean, this, no one's There'll going... be a notification. No one's going to court, right? I mean, the question is just whether we think that there would be statutory authority, right? And there... Right. I mean, there's listen, no AMF for this. There's no AMF for this. The War Powers Resolution would not authorize this use of force. Right. It might just not prohibit it. And indeed, uh, so the, the best precedent would be those developed by the Obama administration, especially in Libya... Uh, and then replicated in part by uh, by Trump when he did the earlier strike, saying, look, this is not putting boots on the ground. It's not on a sustained scale of the nature or scale that implicates the war powers of Congress. It's below the threshold, which is an argument that you know astonished many uh, when, when Obama was making those kinds of arguments about national interest and so forth in relation to the intervention, the sustained intervention in Libya. Uh, and... I think that the later invocation of that example by the Trump administration and possibly doing it again now so underscores the point that if you accept that logic, then there's a whole lot of episodic use of substantial military force that the executive branch can do sort of at its discretion. Right. And so presumably the answer is, you know, somewhere in between. But, you know, I mean, let's be real. We're not going to, this is not going to rise in, no, no one in Congress is going to object too strenuously, right? No, no. one, this isn't going to be a thing. That's what makes, that's what makes it both a perfect and a dangerous example. Yeah. Uh, because you're not going to get natural resistance to it or denunciations of it. And then it becomes a precedent. Yep. And, it, and you know. Historical we got, gloss. We got a lot 
a lot of historical gloss, and we've just been adding to it. Should, should we use that as a good pivot to the AUMF, and then we'll come back to NDAs? Yeah, let's talk about AUMFs. So, why, Bobby, separate from the Syria action, why, are, why is the AUMF back in the news? The, the AUMF, by the way, the 2001 Authorization for the Use of Military Force. That old chestnut. Drink, uh, drink multiple this, times. This, this truly is an old chestnut, because we've been having this debate for years and years and years. And for like 68 episodes. I think, I think it's fair to say that what's going on is that... Uh, the, the political center of gravity in Washington has no interest in repealing at least the 2001 AUMF. They want to keep it out w- without, there. But without, without some, at least, replacement. Well, let, me, let, me, let me finish. Yeah. So the, the, there's no interest in getting rid of it and going back to, okay, there's no AUMF. What there has been for a long time under both Obama and, and now Trump is, well, we actually, we don't know the White House position on this, but at least some desire to refresh it. And then you get into the question of, all right, well, if we're going to refresh it, though, what kind of new bells and whistles are going to come with it? Because no one ever talks about just saying, hey, we hereby refresh the 2001 AMF. So uh, Senator Corker, Bob Corker is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The outgoing chair. Outgoing chair. So he's he's got a little more amplitude for, uh, for expressing his views. Uh, but he has long been working with Senator Kane on a bipartisan bill to renew and replace the AUMFs. Um, and apparently we're, we're due for another round now. So <laughs> oh, on, yesterday he announced publicly that there is going to be a bill. It said that we're still working on the details. Um, Politico uh, reported yesterday that they've seen a summary. So not the actual draft bill, which, as Corker said, is still in progress, but a summary kind of hidden the highlights. And this is all, for those who've been following AUMF renewal, this is all familiar stuff. Uh, apparently this version, we're told, it would explicitly cover all the current AUMF-covered groups, um, and, and this would be in place of and re- therefore repeal of the 01 and 02 AMFs, which is very interesting. Um, and then the part that will cause all the friction, <laughs> some kind of mechanism to allow additional groups to be added uh, going forward. Uh, so the president in some way or fashion would, would identify additional groups and they'd be in too, subject to an opportunity for Congress to, quote, reject them. And the, the public reporting doesn't specify how that's going to work. A lot of devils in the details there. And then and uh, you also have not a sunset, but a periodic obligation to, to engage on this on the part of Congress. Every four years, Congress would have to consider whether to do another refresher, but it wouldn't sunset if they failed to do it. Oh, they'd have to consider it. They'd have to consider with it. With no well, teeth, with you know, no consequence if they fail to consider it. You know, I think it wasn't that long ago you were you were saying it was good that we'd had that Yemen uh, a, that Yemen withdrawal debate. So yeah. there's, there's it's not nothing to force it wait, onto wait, the hey, debate I'm not, agenda. Listen, listen, this, I'm not saying this is nothing. I'm uh, saying this is this is about 5% of something. But this, uh, it, fi- it felt like more, like more than 5% before, but I would say this is definitely more than 5%. I think that you can't let the best be the enemy of the good here. And if, if the deal is that there will be no further legislation, but on, yes. on okay. this okay. issue, okay. If, we, if we like the other parts, okay. this fine. is better than the status Fine, quo. fine. Listen, I will, I will happily concede that I would rather see this bill in law than the status quo. Okay, Which, but that brings us back to this add additional groups part. Now, we, we need to be clear. We don't know what the bill is going right. to say. And so the language is going to really matter. Right, but um, we've had, over the years, we've had... You know, disagreement on this. This is where I figured we would disagree. But what is your current thinking about? Let, let's back up. The status quo is you have a statute that merely says the president can use all necessary and appropriate military force against those whom he determines perpetrated the 9/11 attacks and right. those who harbored them. And that has been spun out over time to include Al Qaeda, the Afghan Taliban, and associated forces engaged in hostilities against the United States and its coalition partners. True. And under the associated 
Force's heading, which actually isn't even in the original statute, but it's been read into it, I think properly, but people are you know not all in agreement on that. Um, we've had the ability under Bush, Obama, and now Trump, we've added in groups as needed. Um, so my view has long been that we'd be better off with a mechanism that forced that adding in into the open, where, where it was transparent to the public. Um, obviously, the devil's in the details as to how you do it. But the, I think it's fair to say that the standard counterargument to that is, oh, God, you're making it that much more legitimate and likely that that will occur. And therefore, you're sort of given a blank check to the executive to, you know, depending on how the expander clause is written, you're given a blank check to add in whomever. Now, obviously, you could write the blank check so it can only be spent in certain stores or subject to certain conditions. And that's some kind of check. But for me, it, what it comes down to is the sense that, look, they add in who they want to add in. Uh, and I don't, I don't see this as really giving them much they don't already have. But I do see a chance to force it into the limelight. So it's not. Matters. I think... Our disagreement depends on what the bill actually says, okay? I mean, if the bill says, if the bill actually articulates substantive criteria by which a group has to, you know, be a yardstick against which the government has to actually conclude that a particular new group is an associated force, fine, yeah. right? If it just says, you know, hey, President Trump, you can point to anybody, and as long as we yeah. don't disapprove, right. they're if an associated it, if force. If it's not constrained in that way, I wouldn't like it either. If it is constrained, if you get some reasonably specific definitions, and, and by the way, I've never liked the, the often touted definitions at the level of, um, an associated force is anyone who joins the fight, uh, belligerent. you, you got to be more specific than that if you're going to put real teeth into it. Um, that said, that's been the governing model for a while, and it does at least require that nexus with al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, I can imagine two certification requirements where you make the Secretary of Defense be on paper, putting their pen, their name to a paper that says these conditions have been met as to this group. Yeah. You know, we've seen in the context of detainee transfer restraints that making the Secretary of Defense actually sign something, making representations about what will happen, that's taken very seriously. That's the whole point of having people sign off in these deals. All right, so it's all premature to talk about this at all? <laughs> no, it's not though, right? Because, I mean, like, the question is whether anything's going to come of this. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, what's, what's the line for Brent? See if anything comes of it instead of the old, you know what? Um, right. So, so I think it's worth sort of be- keeping the ball in the air because you know it's only through public pressure, public attention, public interest yeah. that Congress is ever going to feel any you know compulsion to actually pursue one of these bills. So it's very clear that at the very least we'll have a markup in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Then I have to assume they'll have a hearing with both administration and also uh, other witnesses at some point along the way. That's what's within uh, Corker's control. He can make all that happen. Whether the leadership will actually bring a bill that passes out of the SFRC to the floor, I don't know. Do you do you think the White House, Steve, uh, might decide it's if, if it's otherwise pretty much a confirmation of what they've already got, but it, it takes away the criticism and the, and the associated friction of this of having to rely on a 17-year-old statute, um, do you think that makes it attractive enough for the White House to get on board? No. Because why, why bother? I mean, if you're the White House, what is the what is the motivation for doing this at yeah, this point? Well, taking away the friction I just mentioned, yeah, including but, but, friction that would materialize if they bring an Islamic State detainee. To, so, to, right, so, so let's, see, let's get there first, right? And we'll see what happens. All right. So. Lots to watch. Lots to watch. Okay, now, we need to talk about this uh, sort of off-topic issue of NDAs and arbitration. What's this all about? So, I mean, this is, it's a couple of different things, but I mean, there has been a lot of discussion in legal circles in the last couple of weeks um, about 
Both. I mean, so from part of it's the sort of Trump side of this, Bobby, which is the president's, I think, unprecedented effort to have everyone who works in the administration, or at least all the political appointees, sign non-disclosure agreements that would even be binding after they leave government, which I think is... It's, is it's, that a contract against public policy? So it probably... I remember I mean, that from one L year. Yes. So I mean, it's certainly true that those kinds of NDAs are almost certainly unenforceable, but it's the specter of them that I find so alarming, right? It's just further... It's more of this, you don't work for the government, you work for me, right? Which I think is is a dangerous mentality for public servants. But <laughs> yeah. um, it's also come to light because of, I think, some really important work by um, Ian Samuel, uh, who's a Clemenco fellow at Harvard, co-host of First Mondays, um, and your friend and mine, Leah Littman from UC Irvine, um, about sort of law firms, right, using NDAs, basically foisting NDAs upon summer associates after they've already accepted their position as a way of basically compelling not just non-disclosure of anything that goes wrong, but forcing them into arbitration as opposed to litigation if there's any, like, sexual harassment complaint or anything of the ilk that comes along while they're working at the firm. So this is fascinating to me. Obviously, it's been it's been quite a while since my <laughs> summer associate and then practitioner days um, Let's just say that was all in the nineteen somethings. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't think anyone back then was at least in, at the level I was at. We weren't signing non disclosures or anything of the kind. It's a sign of the times, of course. It's a, it's a sign of the the further evolution of employment law and practices that that's become a thing. Um, did you say that these obligations are being presented to people after they've accepted? So that's so that the thing that really I think set off Ian and Leo was that this was being foisted upon summer associates after they'd already accepted their position, at which point of course they have no leverage. They have no leverage. How can you can't say no, you've already relinquished your other job opportunities. Right. But so and so pretty quickly after Sounds unenforceable as a result. Probably but again, I mean there's there, there's there's sort of formal enforceability and there's practical enforceability. Right, right. I mean it's like kinda if, hard the whole point of taking that job is so you can get a permanent offer. Kinda hard to get that permanent offer if you, uh, if, if you if you if you win a boat. lawsuit where if you if you if you take your firm to court over whether their their mandatory arbitration agreement is unenforceable. Well, indeed, I mean, you wonder if you just say like mm, not signing that, and they say okay, well that's fine, you can still come here, but like are you are you getting all the you know right. the the lousy cases? Oh no, there's definitely just... a red flag going in that file. So so all this to say, so so the 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 sort of bad PR campaign that that Ian and Leah ran, I think, led to. Just about every firm that was doing this publicly known that they won't do it anymore, at least with their summer associates. Some firms went further and said with all of their employees, that's good. But I think it's an important sort of window into a much larger problem that goes beyond law firms, Bobby, which is just how pervasive and at least to my mind pernicious these kinds of agreements have become. Um, you know, there are so many things we sign today either unknowingly or, you know, it's a contract of adhesion mm-hmm. where we really have no opportunity to change the terms, where we are foregoing rights we would otherwise have to litigate disputes in you favor You mean like, of, like Facebook's terms of service? So Facebook's terms <laughs> of service, um, your cell phone contract, right, your cable contract, I mean, everything you sign where you have these, not only do you have, Bobby, not only are you, are you almost certainly signing mandatory arbitration agreements, you're also probably signing class arbitration waivers, um, right, which is basically preventing, so, so at that point, if your cable company is docking, is charging you an extra two or three dollars a month, right, you don't, I mean, you care. Wait, if I can't, if I can't have a class action against them, I'll never get my, my two dollar discount script and and the lawyers who brought that case will never get their two hundred million dollar yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, windfall. And Darn ca- it! This seems unfair. And the cable company will never have an incentive to not overcharge fees to all of their customers. Th- clearly, that is the status quo. 
so so what I'm trying to say is like I feel like you know I'm 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 really happy to see the sort of public shaming work here. I mean I think this is but but I think it is it would be too bad, right, if we say, oh, the law firms are no longer requiring their employees to sign uh, NDAs and mandatory arbitration agreements. You know, part of me wants to say, well, wait a second, you know, shouldn't we think about this as a more general problem? And indeed, if I can do one little sort of tangent for a second, you know, if you've, if you've studied the Supreme Court's arbitration jurisprudence, I think this is one of the more lesser known messed up areas of Supreme Court case law over the last 20 years when the as the Supreme as the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has taken the Federal Arbitration Act of 1962 which Congress has not amended any time recently in any relevant respect and increasingly read into it federal policies that displace state efforts to protect consumers state efforts to protect those with less bargaining power in these situations so you know all of which, right, as federal preemption based on judge-made constructions of the policy enmeshed in a 56-year-old statute that Congress hasn't amended recently. I suspect there have been many bills to uh, alter it that Congress has chosen not to pursue. And so sure. we don't want to characterize wait, it as wait, wait. entirely... Uh, wait, are you suggesting <laughs> that in a problem about unequal and uneven bargaining power between employees and employers and between consumers and big business... Congress is siding, Congress is with, siding with the employers and big business? I cannot believe that. I'm I am shocked. shocked. It's almost as if you're suggesting... Congress isn't tending to its business in general. Well, there is that. But I think right. but but I just want to say I think that, you know, as is so often the case when one little issue comes up that all of a sudden grabs public attention on a matter that was previously not publicly noteworthy, the law firm part of the story is the tip of the iceberg. It, it is, but to, so to me the the only tangent I would really go on from this is the larger question of how much through the mechanisms of contract employment law. Yeah. How much stuff that goes on that's really relevant for harassment purposes never sees the light of day. Yeah. And I think you've got a lot of – I think it's – I can understand why employers are, are kind of running scared and their lawyers are presenting – or the HR people are presenting them with these uh, apparent or so-called solutions. These, this is not the way to go to no. try to keep things uh, through NDA vehicles from bubbling to light. And I think that companies that pursue this are going to get black eyes just like the law firms at issue here did. To a point, right? I mean I don't see – I don't see cable – so if it's employer-employee, right? I, so this could spread more generally to employer-employee relationships. I don't see it crossing the line to consumer business relationships. No, that was my point. Is I'm yeah. saying like I, I have some sympathy with you yeah. on the on the harassment side yeah. of things. Uh, to turn this into a general consumer protection versus big bad yeah. employers, that to me, I don't see that having any political legs. Uh, in no, that, oh, it definitely has yeah. no political legs. I, I feel like it's just it's all it's a good opportunity to, to sort of point out to folks who may not have followed this that if you want to look for areas of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in the last 20 years that have had a really important and, in my view, uh, desultory, derogatory, bad effect, <laughs> right, on, on everyday people, look at the Supreme Court's jurisprudence of the Federal Arbitration Act. This could be an area where we do indeed disagree, but it's also one where I'm quite sure I lack expertise, so I'll just move on to the next well, And I just fake it till I make it. All right. Um, <laughs> well, let's, so, so speaking of private litigation, why, why don't you say a bit about the Severstall exports case, and then we'll sort of, we'll close with the more conventional Guantanamo yeah. military detention stuff. Okay, so um, going back, this is more Trumplandia. This is... Uh, Trumplandia! Trumplandia is going to be a great new series. We've been living in it. It's, it's a giant It's uh, completely implausible, show. okay? 
way the 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 the, the, the producers the, the producers would never have believed that any of this was plausible. They wouldn't have greenlit the script. I'm just we, we got to get better writers, yep. certainly for this show. Yeah. Well, okay. Severstall exports. Basically, what you have here is a lawsuit filed and. Uh, I'll ask you to comment on what it, this is. The ah. International Court of Trade. Court of International Trade. Court of International Trade? But the abbreviation's ICT? No, CIT. Are you, oh, it is? Pretty sure. Darn it. All right. Maybe I'm thinking ICTY. You might be, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the United States Court of International Trade. So it's the CIT. You know what? You're right about that, darn it. I had my ICTI hat on. I should have had my CIT hat on. Were you ever a CIT? What is that? Counselor in training? No. Oh, my my summer camp, right? The the year between senior <laughs> camp and actually coming back. So so when you were fifteen or sixteen, you'd be a CIT, a counselor in training, where the deal was you didn't pay you, you only pay like you a nominal yeah. tuition uh, 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 um, tuition, but you actually work most of the this time. This is the camp version of if if the service is free, you're the product. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I just a quick digression. I never did summer camps. Um, I always had these jobs like you know, cleanup crew for construction sites. My, my dad was real big on, you are definitely going to learn the, the value of hard work and get motivation to get, you know, complete college, etc. And I got to say, uh, doing cleanup crews in South Texas in the summertime, that's pretty good motivation to go hit the books. <laughs> um, I always wanted to work at the record store at the mall, but you know, that was not an option. All right. So what's going on here? Uh, you're in the Court of International Trade because Severstall Exports, these are subsidiaries of a giant Russian steel company owned by, primarily owned by Alexei Mordashov, who's a big time uh, Putin-friendly oligarch. Uh, these subs, including a sort of a two-person company that's sort of an outpost in Miami, and then also the Swiss subsidiary, they're challenging Trump's steel tariffs. These steel tariffs we talked about in the show were justified, formally speaking, as a legal matter under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. Lots of 1960s legislation today on this show. Uh, as as necessary for national security <coughs> reasons. We talked at the time about how there's a lot of reasons to doubt that, to think that this is really just protectionism. So here comes Severstall Exports <laughs> saying, yeah, exactly. This wasn't – this was – this was ultra vires because it's not really the stated justification. This is really protectionist. And basically they cite two things in support of their requested injunction and declaratory judgment. They say, look, look at Trump's tweets. It's totally protectionist. And in this respect, their claim closely tracks the model of the, uh, the travel ban cases saying, look, they say one thing about right, national pretext. security. But it's all pretext. And look at what Trump, Trump says. Get into Trump's mind and you'll see the truth. Um, and then separately say, also look at the exceptions. There's exceptions for Canada and all these allies. And if the goal here was just propping up for national security purposes, the domestic industry, why would you have exceptions at all, especially ones that will really impact your domestic industry? So they went in already for a TRO, a temporary restraining order. And that was before Judge Jane Rastani. Ah, um, Judge Rastani. Judge Rastani. I know Judge Rastani. Oh, you do? She often sits by designation on other circuits. Oh, that's cool. And one of my former students in American clerked for Judge Rastani. No kidding. Well, you'll have to check out her opinion because on the 5th, she dropped a written order uh, rejecting the TRO request, finding that, among other things, they don't have a likelihood of success on the merits. That doesn't mean they can't win on the merits. It is not dismissed. The case goes forward. Uh, and who knows? Uh, it's clear from the context that she's not very interested in the let's read Trump's mind by reading his tweets. Let's ignore what the Commerce Department's report said. 
But I think the window is open there for some amount of serious litigation to go forward on the merits because of the exemptions for Canada and the Allies. Indeed. So, so uh, let me let me just sort of talk a bit about how this litigation works, right? Because I think folks are probably not that familiar with the Court of International Trade. Indeed. So the Court of International Trade is actually an Article Three court. It is not one of these specialized non-Article Three courts. It's a real court. So hey. <laughs> It's it's so great that a comment like that can get a rise out of you. Come on, man! The, the court of appeals for the armed forces was here last week. Did you, you did you tell them they weren't a real court when they were here? Certainly not while they were here. Oh, okay. They're a real court. They're a real court. All right. So I mean, if they can hold you, I think if they can hold you in contempt, they're a real court. Yes, your honor, you're a real court. And, and indeed, <laughs> I, I'm often held in contempt. All right. So, um, so it's an Article Three court. It was basically it's it's a derivative of the former U.S. Court for Customs Claims. Um, Congress basically cleaved it off in 19. 80. And the way it works is it hears lawsuits arising under federal tariff and trade laws that Congress has specifically sent there, either by private parties like Seversol Exports or by the federal government. Um, and then appeals from the Court of International Trade go to the federal circuit. Yes. Um, the sort of uh, uh, bastard stepchild of the Article Three Circuit Courts. What what else does the Fed Circuit Oy. get? They get patent appeals. So the Federal Circuit was created in 1982, and it was created to be the specialized appeals court. But the weird thing about the Federal Circuit is that it's actually like six different specialized appeals courts. So most prominently, the Federal Circuit gets patent appeals. Um, patent trials go to every single district court, right? But the appeals all go to the Federal Circuit. Um, they get Merit Systems Protection Board appeals from you know government <laughs> employees who think that they're um, they've been acted upon unfairly or inappropriately in the workplace. Um, they get appeals from the Article One U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. So veterans claims go there. They get appeals from the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. So takings claims, uh, breach of contract claims against the federal government, right? And they get appeals from the Court of International Trade. So tariff. And all this stuff. Um, it's kind no, of a buffet. Well, it's a buffet, which also, which you know, as I as I teach my federal court students, makes you wonder what the heck was you know, how can you have a specialized federal appeals court that has like seven different specialties? Maybe it's called the food court. You go there, and there's Ooh, all the you know, like there's Chick fil A, there's there's the the walk place. So maybe it would make sense if you actually segregated the panels. Like if there was a panel of the federal circuit that heard the patent cases, right. and if there's a panel of the federal circuit that heard the veterans cases. But in but fact, it's not how they do it. It's just a catch-all. It's a catch-all, and so you know, as a result. You'd be shocked. Some of those specializations actually end up getting pretty short shrift. You don't tend to see a lot of folks with veterans' experience on the federal circuit, for example. Well, with with this particular issue, it's really it presents as basically a, the same issue that we've got in the travel yep, ban totally. cases. To what extent, if any at all, can a federal judge look behind and 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 reject the stated justification for yep. some otherwise statutorily authorized action and instead say, no, that's baloney. You're lying about that. What it really is is this. It's, and I think that's such an uphill battle even under Trump. It's an uphill battle, but it does. I mean, it is the central legal question of the Trump age, right, which is to what extent is the presumption of regularity called into question by the yep. actions of this Guy exactly, and one of the and as many people have observed, uh, the like one of the many legal legacies <laughs> of this weird time we're living in is going to be a substantial weakening of the prerogatives of the executive. Maybe. in this context, maybe. Yeah, I, I suspect they're going to come off worse for wear. They certainly won't be stronger. 
They won't be stronger. I think the you know this is going to be a big Supreme Court term. I think to help answer that question. Oh, I, here's why I think what I said is going to be true. I think that for the, the rest of our lives, yeah. anytime in our future sort of ordinary administrations, these issues come up, someone who's trying to get the second guessing yeah. to take place we'll will say, yeah. "Look, granted this current administration, blah blah blah, but the rule has to be that you do sort of a de novo or non-deferential review because what if there's another president? Right. What if there's Trump? a Trump? Yeah, right. The the Trump tint." The Trump taint. Um, all right. So uh, really quickly, let's do a couple quick hits on our sort of bread and butter, and then we'll do some some Mets-themed frivolity. So, Bobby, you listened to, I think, a large chunk of the oral argument yeah, in Joe versus Mattis. I, I, I read the awesome review that, that Quinta did at Lawfare, yep. and I also listened a couple of times because it was a long drive I was on. I, let, I will let, say this. Let's, let's remind folks what this was about. So Dovey Mattis is our American citizen detainee still, still. In, in military <laughs> custody in Iraq. I really should have bet you had been money. I should have put a lot of money on it being April, like on it being seven months without any merits determination by a district court. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought. I wouldn't have thought that Chutkin could let it go this long. And and I got to say, actually, it's been a while since the. This is, by the way, we're about to talk about not the merits, but the detainee transfer issue. Uh, back to the merits. Like those briefs are in. Yeah. Let's go. Let's, let's go. let's go here. All right, so uh, on the, the D.C. Circuit right, right, has so the side issue. Yes, and the side issue has to do with Judge Shutkin's order requiring 72 hours advance notice should the government want to transfer Doe into the custody of a, another country. Now, um, the government is objecting to this, saying you've cast a shadow over our diplomatic negotiations. Please remove the shadow. We can't get these deals done, or we shouldn't have to try to get these deals done with the possibility that, okay, handshake with the foreign government, but now i got to go tell the, the detainee he's going to go into court, and then we're going to have it all kind of gummed up in legislation. I'm sorry, litigation. Um, so they had an oral argument. Uh, Judge Henderson didn't actually show for it. It was kind of interesting. I, who knows why? Maybe she was sick or something. But she's still going to participate in the ruling. Presumably she also has been listening to the argument. So but not this podcast. It, it was Judge uh, Wilkin, uh, Wilkins in Srinivasan, and uh, it was a good and interesting argument. Um, here's here's a key thing. One thing that has become clear, and this apparently has evolved as this appeal has gone on, the government at this point is only saying that the transfer notification requirement is is a problem as to two specific unnamed countries, either one of which would be the ones the United States would like to transfer to. In other words, they're not objecting to the transfer notification as to any other country in the world but these two. Um, they are not saying in open session what the two are, but it's super obvious what they are. It's very obvious that it's Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Yes. Why? Well, Saudi Arabia, because John Doe is not just an American citizen, but he's a Saudi citizen too. And in fact, good seems, report on Katie Bo Williams. Seems to have lived most of his life in Saudi Arabia. Um, they have the stronger ties to him. So, no doubt, one of the possible transferee states is Saudi Arabia. And the other one would be Iraq, which is where he currently is and where, no doubt, the U.S. government is perhaps hoping can you say that no doubt they're perhaps hoping sure that's fair there's no doubt they're hoping there's no doubt they're hoping that iraq would at least contemplate prosecuting him and therefore were that to happen it would make it i think exactly like munaf um and therefore, they'd get the benefit of you know definitely being able to transfer. I, I think there's one different. I think there are two differences from Munaf, right? One, he didn't go to Iraq, 
right? So, yeah, so in, but he went to Syria, he, which yeah, is but one he, combined but he didn't combat go, But he didn't zone. go to Iraq. Yeah, but I, I think that it's a distinction, but to me, right. it can't possibly be a but salient distinction. Two, I think the legal relationship between the U.S. and Iraq today is different than it was in 2008 because, right, the bilateral secu- of the, the sort of shift in the bilateral security agreements that have evolved over time. I, I agree that both of those distinctions exist. I don't think either one bears weight in a way that matters for the relevant Maybe. doctrine, which is what's the sovereign interest yeah. of the other entity? Is it just like, hey, they said they'd take them, or do they have a relatively strong and genuine but, but, cognizable but, sovereign interest in having the person? But to be clear, Munaf does not actually foreclose the relief Judge Chutkin provided, right? Munaf is not a notice case. Munaf is that there would right. be no legal objection to a transfer. Right, and, and which, is, which is why I actually have had no problem I don't think there's anything wrong with the notice requirement because right. you do need to consider these issues, including the Valentine issue, which is sort of the one I think that looms largest. Val- the Valentine issue, guys, just being whether the government has affirmative legal authority to transfer right. wholly apart from whether the transfer would potentially implicate John Doe's rights to be free from persecution, torture, mistreatment. So you'll love this. There was this whole painful exchange about the phrase affirmative legal authority where it seemed like the government was, was sort of, you know, resisting this phrase and, and, and Judge Srinivasan had to say, like, okay, what if I quit calling it legal authority, but you had to have some identifiable, I forget how he put it, but it was one of these ridiculous sort of waste of time over semantics. Here, here's the important part about it. So we're only talking about whether or not the court should sustain the transfer notice as to those two countries. Both those countries, I think, in my opinion, have clear, strong, sovereign interests, potentially. But it's distinguishable from Munaf in the following ways for the moment. Iraq, and this is critical, and it was never, I felt, very clearly discussed in the oral argument, but the central thing is that Iraq hasn't yet indicted or otherwise initiated criminal prosecution against this person, so far as we know. Now, maybe in the closed session of the argument, there was some new information there, but the public record shows no movement yet. Unless and until that happens, it's not exactly on all fours with Munaf, and it's quite distinguishable. Iraq's interest, it's not actually clear what Iraq's interest is uh, until they initiate prosecution. Um, And then there's the Saudis' interest, which is, in my view, sufficient to justify a transfer, and here already, because it's entirely bound up in his citizenship status. They have the same interest in him that the United States has in him. He's one of ours. Um, That is... I think a very strong argument. It's also a novel one. I was disappointed that maybe because it was the open session, they couldn't name the countries. Um, The open part of the argument, you know, just didn't get into these distinctions. I assume that's what they mostly were talking about during the closed session. So surely they paid a lot of attention to it. Um, There was a huge amount of discussion about whether a... uh, the government's holding Doe for now as an enemy combatant. A, is, is there some mechanism to review that? Well, of course there is. That's the, that's the bulk of the case. Um, and that, that took a while to come out clearly. The reason they seemed to be talking about it for so long was there seemed to be a lot of interest uh, in the possibility that the affirmative legal authority to transfer him is itself simply the fact that he's an enemy combatant. The implicit claim being that that brings with it authority to transfer as needed. Um, I don't know how I feel about that argument where it's a U.S. citizen. That's exactly my view. I will say, as you know, I, I think this guy's totally transferable yeah. and also totally detainable <laughs> and probably detained on the merits based on what we've seen so far. But... I do not think it's the case that an American citizen who is properly held as an enemy combatant can simply be turned over to anyone else. 
just, just by dint of the existence of an armed conflict that allows his military detention. Yeah, he could be transferred to Iraq for prosecution. He right. could be transferred to Saudi Arabia because he's also a Saudi right, citizen. Right, right. So, so right. So presumably there are. This is. I mean, this is. This goes back to sort of an early part of the Hamdi Padilla cases, right? Which was whether a declaration of war of itself was sufficient to authorize detention, right? I mean, it's like you know. Just because it's wartime doesn't mean that the rules otherwise disappear for these kinds of off-battlefield detainee dispositions. When they're citizens, these things have to be dealt with. And, and so that's what I, I, I felt that it, obviously it's fine in oral arguments to dwell on issues yeah, and yeah, of ideas, but I felt like that was a lot of attention paid to a line of right. argument that really shouldn't be the determining factor here. So I hear, I hear you saying, and please stop me if this is unfair, that you thought the court ultimately seemed fairly sympathetic to the government's position. Actually, you know, it's funny. This was a classic. When you listen to them grilling one side, you think, huh, they're really giving him a hard but then time. But they the other side. And then they yeah. give the other side a really hard time, too. I will say this is the first time. I've never met Shri, yeah. a judge friend of Asana. I've never uh, interacted with them. But he, he was the main participant. Oh, yeah. That was always going to be the case. He No, he's impressive. Yeah. Like, I, I thought he is clearly thinking about this pretty carefully. And I, I liked what I heard. But I am a little worried that they're going to go some, down some sort of line of, hey, it's an armed conflict. And um, as he put it, the give and take of, of combat, part of what's going on is you got one side holding somebody, they transfer them to another. That shouldn't be the rule for a U.S. citizen. We need to look for what's the sovereign interest apart from that. So so I, I, I'm with you. Let me say one more thing on that. I think what I take that whole colloquy to be about is Shri trying to figure out if it is possible for the court to hold that as to these two countries – Chutkin's order injunction was inappropriate because the government would clearly have legal authority to tr- like. Can they reach out and decide the merits of oh, transfer no to those yeah. two countries as a way of pretermitting the injunction? And the problem I have with that is, you know, I don't know that there's that much of a factual record. For example, if it's not a Valentine claim, but if it's actually a torture claim, right? And that's why the seventy-two hour notice thing makes sense because we actually need to right. know. Who are you going to transfer? And why? And why? And, and who? You know, it's all great. Say, like, well, we're transferring to Iraq. Well, like, for what purpose? Well, like, are you transferring to the Iraq military for right. continued enemy combatant detention? Or are you, tra- are you transferring to the security forces for some kind of, you know, interrogation? Is it traffic court? Is right. it release? What is it? This so, is, so, so the details matter, which is all the more reason why I think you and I both think Judge Chuck actually didn't overstep her bounds simply by requiring notice. Agreed. But we'll see if the D.C. Circuit agrees. All right. Now, we've gone a little while without saying the words military commission. Or Guantanamo. Go. All right. So really quickly in military commission land, the only, I think, really sort of noteworthy development in the last week has been in the Nashiri litigation. Once again, this is the alleged USS Cole bomber whose case is currently under abatement because of an intractable ethical conflict. Um, the case, Bobby, is now in the Court of Military Commission Review. We talked in our last episode about the very strange order the CMCR had issued requesting briefing and – or two weeks ago, briefing and responses. Um, the briefs are now in. Shockingly, Nashiri and the government take rather different positions about the CMCR's jurisdiction to even hear this appeal and their ability to do anything through a mandamus. Let me just note sort of two relevant points for our listeners Relevant point number one, Bobby, two of the lawyers who actually stepped off the case, um, uh, Spears and Eliadis, um, have actually filed a motion to intervene in this appeal because their position is we are part of this case. Like our ability – and I actually think that's right. that's right. This is casting a rather large shadow over their – Yeah, right. So like are we – you know, are we – whether we acted properly as part of this case, Bobby, the CMCR denied their motion to intervene. They then filed a petition for review in the D.C. Circuit of the CMCR's denial of their intervention 
motion. So there's now this oh, like my head hurts. There's now this like front end of the comet that's gotten to the DC circuit simply on the question of whether uh, Eliades and Spears should be allowed to participate in the Nishiri appeal. I suspect we are going to get a ruling from the CMCR, Bobby, pretty soon, pretty quickly um, on the abatement matter. And almost no matter what they say, I think whoever's on the short side of that's going to go to the DC circuit. So, you know, this is gearing up for a pretty big fight pretty quickly now. Well, my view on this, as you know, is that the sooner we can get as many of the issues as close to the merits as possible into the DC circuit's hands, the better off we're going to so, be. So maybe that's, a good, maybe that's good news. We'll see. Um, all right. We are at an hour and five minutes and 43 seconds. All right, two minutes on, on the Mets. The Mets. Rank eight and one, the, baby. Eight and one, unbelievable. If they win tonight, I just want to put this out there. If they win tonight, it will be the best 10-game start in franchise history. Incredible. Um, the 1985 Mets, who won 98 games, that and the 2006 awesome Mets, who won 97 games, both started 8-1 and one before losing Game 10. You know, I think about the 80s Mets, which I, I the mid-80s Mets had such cool starting pitching. Bob Ojeda, uh, you know, Fernando Fernandez, Dwight Ron Darling, Rick Aguilera. And then every now and then Terry Leach throwing sidearm. Terry Leach. Now, how does this current crop... Uh, stack out. So start with starters. Rank listen, the starters. It's all about whether they stay healthy. So Zach Wheeler is supposed to start, I think, tomorrow, and that will be the first time that you get the great Mets starters going all the way through the rotation. Um, so that's a rotation of Syndergaard, Degrom, Harvey, Mats, and Wheeler. Wheeler. Okay, uh, Syndergaard versus Degrom are those the two best at this point? By far. Um, you know, but Syndergaard. Which would you go with? Like if you were if you were starting Game One in the World Series. I'm going to say something controversial, right? If it's right now, based on their track record in the last 10 days, yeah. I actually think DeGrom's off to a better start. Syndergaard's 2-0, but he actually yeah. has not been invincible. No, that's right. Lots of Ks, but... But lots of contact. And no, so, no, that's right. DeGrom you know, has, has Syndergaard may round in the midseason form, but he's coming off this injury, right? He's still, you know, he buffed up a bit. I, DeGrom is a sniper, man. I mean, DeGrom, you know, you put his back against the wall, and he just finds a way out of the situation. So so I think it's it's 1A and 1B. Um, listen, Zach Wheeler, right, is, I think, the next, from an upside perspective, is the next one on this list. I mean, he's been hurt so much. Yeah. But, you know, I think we're we're up to Matt Harvey 3.0. I don't think this is, this is not the dark say, night. T- tell me about Harvey. Do you think he's, is he ever going to be what he was? No. Um, he, no, because he's not going to be able to throw 97. And, and, you know, everything, all of his off-speed, all of his sort of, you know, stuff was set up by that overpowering fastball. He still can throw 93-94. That's just, that's, that's a pretty big difference. So I think Harvey is, is you know, locked in in that number three, number four spot in the rotation. And Matt's is the wild card. Well, I love it that they have such a good rotation. And just to bring it back to Texas for a second, you, the Astros obviously were so good last year. And the fact that they've added Garrett Cole to the oh, mix is unbelievable. The, the pitching that they can the Astros are going to be disgustingly good. Yeah, uh, it's wonderfully good. All right, one last, two last baseball nerdistry points, and then I think we should we should stop. Yep. So nerdistry point number one: Shohei Otani. Oh my God, that's so fun! First, that is so fun. First major league player, right, to hit three home runs between starts as a pitcher since Babe Ruth in 1919. 1919. That is a pretty cool statistic. Friends, that makes me want to go watch Sandlot. That's right. so great. The Sandlot. The Sandlot. Sorry, don't, don't want to get confused with. 
Sandlot. Betty the Jet Rodriguez. All right. Um, <laughs> Who and, looked a lot like uh, Keith Hernandez, I feel. Oh. Keith. He had that mustache. I'm soured on, I'm soured on Keith a little bit, man. Well, there's a lot to sour about Keith. But, right. but, but for his playing for the Mets, we can, we can appreciate that. And he's kind of funny on the broadcast. All right. Last sort of nerd point, just because as a Mets fan, I cannot resist taking a shot at the New York Yankees. Uh-oh. Um, so, Giancarlo. <laughs> strikeouties. Exactly. So, Giancarlo Stanton, right? The the big offseason pickup, the reigning NL MVP. Ooh, ouch. Um, so, in his, so, he struck out. On Sunday, right, he went, I think, was 0 for 7 with 5 strikeouts. It was the <laughs> second time in the season that he had a game with 5 strikeouts and no hits. Yeah, the Boo Birds were on him with the Bronx cheer, like, from the first appearance. But wait, wait, wait. I, 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 have, a, I, have, oh, a statistic, I have a statistic for you. Oh, lay it on me. That is the first time in the history of Major League Baseball that one player had two games in the same season where they had no hits and five or more strikeouts in the same season. In the same he season, did it. he did it in the same eight series. Days. Yeah, that. Okay, so, what do you attribute that to? He's just he's pressing. He's pressing. He's pressing he's trying to justify the contract. He's pressing, and he doesn't like cold weather. And you know, by the time we're done, Stanton's going to hit two eighty five with like fifty homers, and no one's going to remember this. But it's just it's hilarious to me because the Yankee fans are like, "Oh my God, we you know we screwed up. We again. screwed up." But well, we got another high price free agent that we we. Rude. And meanwhile, the only team in the majors with a better record than the Mets is the Red Sox. That is amazing. I didn't see that coming, yeah. did you? Well, I, I, I knew the Red Sox would be good. I think they had the pitching for it. Um, we'll see. All right. I, I think I, so. So I, I, I'm, I'm ready for Black Panther. We are going to watch Black Panther somehow, some way between now and our next episode. Unless, of course, our next episode is tonight. <laughs> because the way this week is going so far, that wonder. could happen. All right, I think that sums it up for now. Follow Bobby uh, at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. The podcast is at NSL Podcast. And spread the word. We need we need to get some we need some more listeners. Get we, the word out there. Tell your need, friends. Tell we, your enemies. Do we need more listeners? Absolutely. These uh, advertising revenues are so slim right now, and I'm having trouble monetizing the data. Well, it's because I'm just stuck up here in my ivory tower. That's it. You got to work harder. All right, stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.